Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abai Omeya, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, September 18th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Uh, later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the discussions uh, held in Washington, D.C. over the weekend between South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and his United States counterpart, uh, Joe Biden. China uh, may be able uh, to assist the African Union uh, member states in the fight against climate change on the continent. The Kenyan government has clarified their position on the Western Saharan struggle for independence after a tweet uh, which was posted by the recently elected President William Ruto. And the Benin government is pleased with the depiction of its history in the Hollywood film, The Woman King. In the second and third hours, we look back on the 113th anniversary of the birth of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the former leader of Ghana and founder of modern Africa during the post-World War II period through uh, the early 1970s. We feature a rare archival interview with Nkrumah's research assistant, June Milne, along with speeches and interviews by the Pan-Africanist and Socialist leader. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. And uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of Yusu Endur uh, from the West African state of Senegal. Let's listen in. Oh, 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 oh,
Para 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 para
of tracks uh, from uh, Yusu Endor. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, uh, September the 18th, uh, 2022. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, 
And these are just some of the headlines uh, from today's Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the recent visit uh, by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to the United States uh, for high-level talks with uh, United States President Joe Biden. The South African leader uh, just two days ago agreed to cooperate closely with the United States President Joe Biden on health, uh, security, and climate, but warned against punishing African nations for maintaining ties with uh, the Russian Federation. The Biden administration has put a new focus on Africa after being taken aback by the reluctance of some nations to condemn Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has triggered uh, sweeping Western unprecedented sanctions. Uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa enjoyed uh, unusually warm treatment from uh, U.S. President Biden walked him back to his motorcade at the White House. Weeks after Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to South Africa and promised that the United States will listen more to the African people, we really need to make sure we fully understand one another, uh, Biden said as he welcomed Ramaphosa to the Oval Office. Our partnership is essential. Ramaphosa said he sought to work together on security, including South Africa's troubled neighbor Mozambique, as well as on climate change, a key priority for the Biden administration. And uh, you can read the story in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, Beijing, uh, the People's Republic of China, their rising influence on the African continent could help the continent turn around the dangers of climate change, uh, taking advantage of its connections with local economies. Experts uh, discussing the policy changes needed in the China-Africa cooperation, argue that both sides by now understand the danger of climate change, especially following a series of natural disasters like landslides, droughts, and floods. The proposals emerged uh, just this last past Thursday at the 2022 China-Africa Think Tank's Forum on Climate Change and Energy Transition, bringing together policy players from Africa and China of concern to experts is the rising cost of energy for African people, including oil and electricity, which they say should influence subsequent focus on more green energy investment. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Kenya says it has not abandoned a decades-old policy in which it supported the African Union's call for free uh, existence and self-determination and independence for the Sarawi people. In a diplomatic note sent to embassies and representative offices of international organizations in Nairobi, Kenya, it walked back on a controversial tweet last week in which President William Ruto appeared to end recognition of the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic, the SADR, in favor of an autonomy offered by the Kingdom of Morocco. Instead, the Foreign Affairs Principal Secretary, Masharia Kamau, said Nairobi has not departed from supporting the African Union call, as well as a mediation program under the United Nations to have the people of Western Sahara decide their future. And finally, overlooking Kantanu, uh, the capital of the West African state of Benin, this 30-meter bronze statue of a historic female warrior known as the Le Amazon of Dehomey, uh, was inaugurated a few weeks ago. It is here that the premiere, premiere of the film, The Woman King, took place uh, on yesterday. 
A Hollywood production depicts uh, Beninese female warriors who fought against French colonial rule more than a century ago. Pride for all Beninese uh, to have a film that was made especially in the effigy of the Amazons and not just any movie. It's a Hollywood movie, and it's a movie that comes from the biggest movie-producing country uh, I named the United States. Frankly, it is a great pride for me, and it is really a pride to see it before the majority of the Beninese. Frankly, I'm excited. I'm bubbling, said Arulo Leanne, a resident of Continu. The blockbuster release in the United States a few days ago has been received positively by music movie critics. Some Beninese discovering the first images of the film. Hopefully our country will be able to tell these stories with local nuances one day. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. All you need to do is go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network which can be reached at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Yeah, 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 yeah.
welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the sound of Jimi Hendrix. And 52 years ago today, um, Jimi Hendrix, the legendary guitarist, composer, uh, cultural icon, and uh, performer, um, made his transition in London, England on September 18th of 1970. And uh, we played that last track in commemoration of his legacy. Also, uh, today uh, represents the birthday of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, born in Ghana on uh, September 18th of 1909. And uh, we're going to look back at the contributions, the lifetimes and contributions of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who, as we mentioned, uh, hailed from the West African state, then known as the Gold Coast, uh, later known as Ghana under independence. And uh, here is a uh, clip uh, from a acknowledgement of the independent struggle uh, that reached fruition in 1957. The people of the Gold Coast had had their own assembly under the British, but not independence. In 1957, they became the first black Africans to get complete freedom. Leaders from East and West came to Accra to see the handover. Vice President Nixon represented the United States. He arrived with a delegation that included civil rights leader Martin Luther King. A new order is coming into being and an old order is passing away. It seems to me that uh, this is fit testimony to the fact that eventually the forces of justice triumph in the universe and somehow the universe itself is on the side of freedom uh, and justice. The British were proud of the peaceful nature of the transfer. For Dr. Nkrumah, main architect of Ghana's independence, this is a day of fulfillment. The longing to be free, the need to be free, these are part of the rightful heritage of man, a heritage denied to colonial Africa until now. The Gold Coast was renamed Ghana with a parliamentary system modeled on Westminster. Committing themselves to civil rights, the new government put up a huge commemorative arch. Here, but a handful of years ago, men laid down their lives for a cause that was not yet won, for freedom, for justice. Kamla Bedema had been with Nkrumah from the start. Now he shared the glory. And in the uh, subdued light, we mounted the platform and were all ready when the lights all went on at five minutes to twelve. With me standing on the right hand of side of Nkrumah, everybody was happy. The cheering probably is still resounding, but we don't hear it. country is free forever. 
understand there is a new African in the world. That new African is ready to fight his own battle and show that after all, the black man is capable of managing the whole of her. I want you all, those who have hats on, to take off your hat and let the band play our national anthem. And from now on, that national anthem is the national anthem of the Bobo to be played on all occasions. was called Freedom High Life, written by E.T. Mensah, the king of African high life music. Ghana, Ghana, land of freedom, toils of the brave and the sweat of the labor, toils of the brave which have brought results, toils of the brave and the sweat of the labor, twice of the brave which have brought results. Israel greet that day at the Independence Square. People are dancing, singing. They love the music and the song. The song really symbolizes the thing of Amukuma. At long last, the battle is ended. Because we have freedom. We have our freedom. Ghana, we now have freedom. Ghana, Already being hailed as the father of African nationalism, Nkrumah gave funds to other nationalist movements and preached the message across the continent. This mid-20th century is Africa's. This decade is the decade of African independence. Forward then to independence, to independence now. Tomorrow, the United States of Africa. Uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah uh, speaking uh, at the independence in March 6, uh, 1957, uh, transitioning from the Gold Coast to Ghana and also at the All-African People's Conference of December of 1958 was the last clip. Right now we're going to hear a rare archival uh, audio file of a interview over the U.S. program Meet the Press uh, that aired in late December of 1958. It features an uh, interview with uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah during a visit to the United States, and uh, they are asking from a number of questions in terms of his philosophical orientation, whether he is a socialist, a communist, a Marxist, um, how does he view the United States as an imperialist country? Quite interesting to hear uh, his responses in December of 1958 
Now, the Meet the Press program is still aired today in 2022 in the United States. It is the oldest and longest-running um, news program uh, in the United States, uh, beginning uh, in 1945 via radio, and then later in 1946, uh, 47, uh, when television was national television network uh, was just getting off the ground in the United States. Let's listen to Meet the Press uh, from uh, December of 1958, featuring Kwame Nkrumah, the then Prime Minister of Ghana. Brings you Meet the Press, the prize-winning interview program produced by Lawrence E. Spivak. Four of America's top news reporters are ready for this unrehearsed news conference. Here's the moderator of Meet the Press, Lawrence Spivak. Welcome once again to Meet the Press. Our guest today is Dr. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, the newest independent African state. Dr. Nkrumah has come to this country at the invitation of President Eisenhower. Dr. Nkrumah was born in Ghana, but received much of his adult education in the United States. For 10 years, he was at Lincoln University and the University of Pennsylvania, first as a student and then as a teacher. In 1947, he returned to the Gold Coast of Africa, where he rapidly assumed leadership in the fight for his country's independence. On March 6, 1957, Ghana became an independent nation, a member of the British Commonwealth, and Dr. Nkrumah was chosen Ghana's first prime minister. The birth of Ghana as a nation has been called a personal triumph for Dr. Nkrumah and a symbol for other African states seeking freedom. Earlier this year, he initiated and was made chairman of the Conference of Independent African States. And now seated around the press table, ready to interview our guest, are Patrick O'Donovan of the London Observer, May Craig of the Portland, Maine Press Herald, Clifton Daniel of the New York Times, and Richard Clerman of Time Life. And now, Dr. Nkrumah, if you're ready, we'll start the question with Mr. Clerman. Prime Minister, in your trip to the United States and Canada, you have repeatedly said that the foreign policy of your government is basically one of non-alignment and positive neutrality. I wonder if you could tell us exactly what you mean by that. Uh, when I refer to this position as that of non-alignment and positive neutralism, all what we mean is that uh, we have to watch out how we align ourselves with any particular group. But that does not mean uh, a sort of negative neutralism, or rather the suspension of any judgment. If any position were to arise, I think we can take the view which we think is the right view to take. Well, we frequently have situations in the world now where the East and West, uh, in some cases, uh, the Russians and the Americans are on opposite sides of an issue. Uh, could you say, in terms of this foreign policy that you've just described, uh, where, in such a situation, your government would uh, place its uh, loyalties? Yes, where we think our interests lie. 
Well, let me be a little more specific. Yeah. We have a situation that is very much in the news now in Lebanon. Uh, where does your interest, interest lie in Lebanon? At the moment, I think that's why our non-alignment comes in. In the case of Lebanon, it's really non-alignment. We don't want to uh, get into the what is now happening there. And I think I've given out my own view on the matter. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, let's turn a moment from your foreign policy to ours in the United States. We've talked about the Lebanon. Uh, you may be uniquely equipped to give us some advice on this subject and others. You were educated in the United States. Your country belongs to the British Commonwealth. And uh, you are certainly one of the outstanding leaders of African nationalism. Perhaps you can give us some advice about our approach to these emerging new countries in Africa and Asia. Now, specifically, back to the Lebanon, would you uh, say that we were right, uh, from our point of view, to have sent our troops to the Lebanon? I would not be in a point to say whether you are right or wrong. But as I have pointed out elsewhere, there's no need to apportion blame anywhere. The only thing is for us to try to find out a solution to the problem. Well, having, having sent our troops there, uh, what uh, solution would you now suggest? Should we withdraw them? Should we, uh, should we remain with our troops for a I time? I would say that uh, you can withdraw them when, say, you have a United Nations force to replace it. Well, let's turn then to another country in the area. Uh, what would you say uh, should be our attitude toward the new uh, revolutionary regime in Iraq? Should we recognize it? Uh, should we establish relations with it? Of course, I'm not very well acquainted with actual the real causes of that coup d'etat. And therefore, perhaps it would be difficult for me to give a judgment here. Well, let me ask you then about uh, 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 something I'm sure you do know something about, and that is what uh, do you think should be our attitude towards our relations with uh, President uh, Nasser of Egypt, a man whom I believe you know and uh, know very well? Well, I think uh, the relationship could be that of friendship. Uh, I remember discussing this very question with him. He pointed out that at a time when he needed help, he didn't get it. You see, and in order to survive, he has to go somewhere else. And that's why you took that uh, step you took. Mrs. I don't think there is a really big enmity uh, between the United States and the United Arab Republic. Mrs. Craig. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, would you join the United Arab Republic? No, because uh, I belong to one of the African states. Yes. Well, you did call a conference of independent African states. Would you call that uh, forming a block? No, I won't call that forming a block. We were, uh, we were particular, very particular about this. We wanted to concentrate on the independent states on the African continent as such. So Egypt was on the African continent. 
That's why the Egyptians invited us, an independent country of the continent, to attend this conference. You speak quite often of Libya, Tunisia, Morocco. Would you would you like to form them them into a block of which you would be the head? You were very particular at the conference not to use this word block, because all what we are trying to achieve is some sort of a united outlook to solve our common problems. As I made it quite clear, we are not ganging up against anybody. Well, sir, what do you call that? If you don't call it a block, what name do you call it when you get together with the common aims and a kind of an alliance? Perhaps you might call it the African personality, which we think has now emerged. Well, don't you think it's That's the same thing? Don't you think it's the same thing when friends get together to defend each other? No, we didn't say we are going to get together to defend each other, either by military arms or anything like that. We want to get together so that we shall be able to discuss our common problems. There is your British Commonwealth, and I think there is also your an American Union. You are friendly with Israel. Would you, what would you do if your friend, uh, Mr. Nasser, were to go on with what he says he will do, which is to destroy Israel and push it into the sea? I don't think I've ever noted that from Nasser saying that was going to destroy Israel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He has. never come to my notice. Yes, sir. I've heard him say it. Then it's going to be a job. That's all. Well, what would you do, said Idle, and let it be done, your friend Israel? Is it not let you it... Said Idle, and let that be done, your friend Israel? But that's I don't think you? that will be done. Mr. O'Donovan. Sir, if I could turn perhaps to the internal affairs of your country. Uh, I've read quite a lot lately, particularly in the British press, uh, about some rather turbulent political affairs that are going on in Ghana. And I wondered if perhaps you sometimes thought that the British, in leaving, had saddled you with an unsuitable parliamentary system. I wouldn't say that they have they left us and saddled us in sort of a bad parliamentary system. But all depends upon the constitution mm. that is left with you. But can you make it work? I mean, would you say, for instance, that uh, democracy as an institution is perfectly safe in Ghana today? I would definitely say that democracy in Ghana is perfectly safe. But sometimes, you know, you have to take some measures to really safeguard democracy in its initial stages. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, can you find any use for the more traditional modes of government in Africa? For instance, you have a, a quite a large system of chieftains in your country. Do you find those now getting in the way of the proper development of a modern Ghana? No. At the moment, uh, most of our chiefs are becoming to realize that the times are changing, and they must also change with the times. Would it be quite possible in the next election, I mean, it, would it be theoretically possible in the next election for you to be defeated and the opposition to take over in a quite orderly manner. It's possible. Mr. Prime Minister, is it true, as has been said, that although you've given Ghana considerable stability, uh, Ghana has lost some freedom under you? That charge has been made, as you know, in this country. We say that under me, I think Ghana has got more freedom. And 
Anytime I, I ask this question, I always say that I wish some of the press from here could go there and study our problems locally. Naturally, we were faced with some definite problems at the beginning, and we had to take some certain steps. Well, is it true at all that you tend to get rid of your opponents when you don't like their criticism, as also has been charged in Time Life, for example, in this country? That is not true. It isn't? No. Mr. Clarman. Mr. Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Spivak has been talking to you about civil liberties inside your country. Uh, do you have a, a law called a prevent uh, a uh, pre preventative detention law? And am I right in understanding that that is a law by which you may imprison a man up to five years for a threat to national security or a threat to foreign policy without any step-by-step -step judicial process? Yes, I think uh, I was responsible in introducing that bill myself. Well, now, in Western terms, that would be considered a peculiar law for a democracy to have on its books. I wonder if you could explain that to us, sir. You see, we've got to a point that you have to adopt certain temporary measures. You see, we have an independent judiciary. We have uh, an independent civil service. Uh, when the British, you know, left, uh, they left, shall I put it this way, that they had the power by which the real authority by which with which they governed Ghana. They left, and then they did not put it anywhere else. And so everybody started feeling as if that anybody can do whatever he likes. And so we have to find out measures by adopting some temporary measures by which we can really put this thing to stop until everything goes well for us to be able to follow the right line. May I change the subject yeah. to a larger legislative question? Uh, are you in favor of the proposed summit meeting that is about to uh, apparently about to take place in New York? Yes, I'm all in favor for the summit conference because all this argument here and there is sort of when they meet around the common round table, then they will actually know who is fooling each other. What do you hope will emerge from this conference? I mean, when they meet. Uh, after they meet, when they've met, and then what do you hope will emerge from their meeting? Well, if nothing emerges, I think they have met. And I think since I came, I've been having all along certain proposals which I've put forward and which I hope the United Nations would take it very seriously. <clears throat> Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I'd like to return just one moment to the question of the internal affairs of Ghana. Uh, to ask about another development there, your country is a member of the British Commonwealth. Uh, do you envision that the country shall remain so for a long time and pursue British institutions and British uh, methods? The reason I ask the question is because uh, since the, uh, Ghana has become independent, we've seen what seem to be some signs of a breakaway from the British tradition. I believe that, um, uh, for example, uh, you no longer have God Save the Queen as the national anthem. I think the Queen's uh, pictures have been taken off the stamps in the country and uh, replaced, I believe, in some cases with your own portrait. 
other evidences of a tendency to drift away from Britain, shall we say. And, uh, you see, we chose according to our own free will to remain within the Commonwealth. And I personally feel that it is our mutual interest for us to remain within the Commonwealth. You see, you have had British traditions, language, and education. It will be difficult to break suddenly. But I think there are points that the African has his own personal outlook, and that's why sometimes I made a point that some sort of a Republican form of government would suit the African's character. But I've gone so far as to make it quite clear that whatever form of Republican form we take, we will still continue to remain within the Commonwealth. Mrs. De Craig. Yeah, Mr. Prime Minister, your country is a very small country and probably could not defend itself militarily. I understand you put your trust in the United Nations. That's correct. Is that true? That's correct. But the United Nations has no force with which to defend you. That's why I'm advocate international force for the United Nations. You mean a police force for the United Nations? That's right. Would Ghana contribute to it? Sure, we shall contribute. You, don't have, you have only three battalions, but I think we can put one battalion outside for the United Nations. Sir? I said you, you have only three battalions, but I think you can put one battalion outside for the United Nations. Yes, but uh, we have never been able to get the United Nations to act in time, even if it had a permanent force. How do you think we're going to get a permanent force for the United Nations? Well, you have to talk about it in the United Nations when they meet. I lead you back again to what I asked you in the first place. Yes. How can you get along without alliances of friends to help you? That's why we must all find ways and means of strengthening the United Nations. You have lived in the United States and were educated here. Do you think the United States is imperialist? It all depends what you mean by imperialism. But as far as I know, I don't think the United States is imperialistic. Well, imperialistic. Imper yeah, I don't think so. You do not think so? No. Uh, do you regard the United States as the shield of the free world? That's the way we regard ourselves. We have helped everybody who I won't say it. I won't say the United States alone. United States and other nations fighting for freedom are the bulwark from that liberty. You want to stop nuclear testing, I have heard you say, but uh, how do you expect the free world to defend itself if it does not have the most modern of weapons which require perhaps testing? But the stopping of the testing should not be done by the, uh, the West alone. The other side also must stop testing <laughs> this atomic test. Mr. Prime Minister, did I understand you to say that if the, there were a United Nations force, you would contribute troops to it? Yes. Would you prepare, be prepared to send troops into Lebanon and Jordan if United Nations force was set up? If the condition demands it, yes. Mr. O'Donnell. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I understand you've had a, a magnificent welcome from an enormous number of uh, uh, American Negroes while you've been here. And I wondered if you'd seen any sign of the sort of sympathy and loyalty and the desire to help 
among American Negroes, which American Jews have for Israel? I think that sympathy is there. That even though uh, they look upon themselves as Americans, I think the bond of blood and kinship makes them feel that perhaps they can do something to help us. And I've put it over to them that something should be done. I think not only when we ask for investment, I think Negro investment also should go to Ghana. How much, Mr. Prime Minister, does the, uh, the attitude to the race question in parts of America, uh, how much effect does that have on the African mind? For instance, how well known is the name Little Rock in Africa? Well, I think Little Rock, only those of us people who can read, who came to our notice, the majority of the people didn't know at all what was this Little Rock. But anyway, the racial problem is there, and I think at the Accra conference, all of us came out clearly that it doesn't matter whatever it is, you should find some way in which uh, racial segregation will never exist. And it was even suggested that in our own areas, in order to show a good example, that we should bring forth legislation to abolish it in our own uh, state. Mr. Clyman. Mr. Prime Minister, it's been said of your economic philosophy that uh, you call yourself a Marxist socialist. Is that correct, sir? Yeah. Uh, would you tell us exactly uh, what you mean when you call yourself a Marxist socialist? When I call myself a Marxist socialist, I'm really talking of philosophy. But I don't know how I should really explain it better here. The man must have an outlook for separate outlook. Uh, I remember discussing this matter with somebody in I think Washington, I don't want to mention names. We were talking about socialism and capitalism. He tried to explain to me that socialism in the long run will lead to dictatorship. I agreed. If you want to put it logically. Capitalism also, I pointed out, if you want to follow it to its logical conclusion, you might also be heading to uh, dictatorship of money. So in the long run, we try to find out a way that whether it's most of this will become mere words. It depends upon the man's approach to this problem and what he actually does. You must find a medium. So I understand one of the points of your visit here is to encourage private American capital to invest in Ghana, is that right, sir? Yeah. And do you think it is any deterrent to that kind of investment, uh, the economic philosophy which you've just expressed? I have never found it incompatible with private investment. In fact, we have made it quite obvious. In Ghana, we are following three principles. Certain jobs in certain industries which can be done by private capital, those also that can be done with the cooperation of private capital and those that can be done by government. We are following these three levels very, very seriously. Gentlemen, our time is running short. Make your questions short, too. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I wanted to ask whether you could specifically tell us whether, uh, in connection with your development plans, you have obtained any promises of help since you've been in this country, particularly for the Volta River hydroelectric project. 
No, I won't say any definite uh, help, but the atmosphere is so congenial that I hope something might come out of it. Mrs. Craig. Mr. Prime Minister, you said in Washington that the Middle East oil resources ought to be brought under international control with possibly the United Nations handling. And what did you mean by that? I have always felt that the oil is the troublemaker in the Middle East. And I felt that the best thing is to, in order to stop all these troubles, is to quarantine the whole of the Middle East on the basis of, say, the neutrality of Austria. But I also know that the practical applications or the, how these things should be worked out can be done by experts. And that's why I've never commended the way and means in which it should be done. Mr. Prime Minister, the Genocide uh, Convention, which makes it an international crime to destroy a race, has been ratified, I believe, by 58 members of the United Nations. I don't believe uh, your nation has yet ratified it. Is there any special reason for that? I don't know much about that. That is a United, uh, that is, uh, a, a United Nations resolution, and I understand that your nation is not ratified, but would you be for ratifying such a resolution which outlaws, makes an international crime to destroy a race as Hitler tried to destroy the Jews, for example? But I think it, it, it condemns itself. I think anybody should be against a thing like that. Yes, and yet your nation has not ratified it yet. Because remember, we are only one year old. Now that some of these problems are coming before us. But you would be but for personally, it. I'll be for it. Yes. Mr. O'Donovan. Uh, Mr. Prime, Mr. Prime Minister, when you come to uh, work practically inside the United Nations, uh, do you find yourself sympathizing most of the time with, say, the Indian delegation and working in with them in the Bandung powers? Of course, you see, we took part, uh, the African states took part with the Bandu Conference. So naturally, in policy making on some real issues relating to Afro-Asian problems, I think we have to talk together. But what matters affecting Africa, I think, is for the eight independent states to have their own objective outlook on the matter. Well, the arrival of all these new Asian states has made an enormous difference, both to international affairs and the United Nations. Do you think that in a few years' time, with yourself and perhaps with Nigeria and others, Africa can also bring something new? That is our purpose. Mr. Clarman. Mr. Prime Minister, you've often been called, as you undoubtedly are, the leader of African nationalism. Do you think that the African nationalism that uh, you lead will coexist happily with Colonel Nasser's Arab nationalism, or will they come in conflict? I hope they do not come in conflict. Uh, Mr. Prime Mr. Daniel. There have, in fact, uh, already been differences between yourself and Colonel Nasser in basic policy, haven't there? For example, in your relations with Israel, which was mentioned earlier, and also um, on this uh, question of the Lebanon, you certainly don't quite agree with uh, Colonel Nasser on the Lebanon. Is there a conflict and a rivalry there? There, have no, uh, there is no conflict. I have made the position quite clear on Israel, you see, to Nasser. And I think he understood my position. 
You see, we follow these things only on principles, and that's what I've been dealing with him, even though it's a personal friend of mine. I'm sorry to interrupt you now, but I see our time is up, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you very much for being with us, and now here is our announcer. Goodbye for Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah, and meet the press. Welcome back, and that was uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah uh, from uh, December of 1958, uh, doing a visit to the United States, uh, performing um, before a panel of U.S. and one British journalist, and of course, a very interesting uh, interview uh, to hear uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah uh, during that particular time period. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, Today is Sunday, September the 18th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, uh, of course, in the city of Detroit, uh, broadcasting. And uh, we're going to take a musical break. Uh, We mentioned earlier that uh, today represents the 52nd anniversary of uh, the transition of uh, Jimi Hendrix. And here's another cut uh, by Jimi Hendrix entitled Pally Gap. Oh, 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 
music of uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, the track entitled Pally Gap uh, from the Rainbow Bridge album, released in posthumously in uh, 1971. And uh, listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, September the 18th, 2022. And this is also uh, the birthday of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and we're going to continue our focus on his lifetimes and contributions. This is a rare archival audio file, an interview uh, with June Milney, uh, the research assistant uh, for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, June Milney was a historian, a publisher, and a researcher. And, of course, uh, she was uh, requested uh, by Kwame Nkrumah after the independence of Ghana to help him in uh, the editing and collection of materials for his second book, uh, which was known as I Speak of Freedom. So we're going to listen to this uh, interview uh, where Milne outlines her relationship uh, with Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and also her views on many aspects of uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah's politics, uh, his life, his transition, etc. Let's listen in to this interview. My name is Bagba Oyote, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, having this conversation with uh, June Mills, a lady who's done a lot to preserve African cultural history and of the, some of the important works of uh, Osajipo Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. When and how did you meet Kwame Nkrumah? Well, it goes back a long way. In fact, I'm celebrating my, the Golden Jubilee because it's 60 years ago when I met him in the year of independence. So Ghana's celebrating, so am I, here in London. Yes, I met him towards the end of 1957 at a Commonwealth Conference here. He had asked to meet me because um, he was embarking on his second book, I Speak of Freedom, and he needed a research assistant and so on to help select suitable speeches and excerpts of broadcasts and things to go into this second book. And um, my husband had worked for Nelson's, which published his Nkrumah's auto, autobiography that also came out in 1957. So he asked my husband, you know, if there was, he could think of anyone, and um, <laughs> said, well, his wife was a historian and had written some history books and so on. She knew about publishing processes. Right. And so he phoned me up from Accra. Oh, he phoned you? Yes, mm. from, from his office at Flagstaff House. Mm. <laughs> we were living in Edinburgh then. Um, and he knew, you see, that we'd spent three years living in what was then the Gold Coast. We both lectured at the University College of the Gold Coast. So he knew that I knew something about the country and its history and so on. So anyhow, he phoned me up and said he was coming to a Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference in a few months and would I um, like to consider working on this um, second book? And um, if so, we could meet, you see, when he was in London. So, of course, I immediately said, yes, I'd love to do that. So that's when I first met him. So why in London? Why in London? And how, how was the meeting like? Oh, well, it was terrific, really. He was staying at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Uh, the only time he stayed there, I think after that, he always stayed at the Ghana High Commissioner's place. But he was staying there at that time. 
And there were a lot of people waiting to see him. We were in some sort of big room there waiting to meet him. And um, so, yes, it was <laughs> quite electrifying, really, because I knew a lot about him, of course, being a historian and, and having been in Ghana and so on. And, um, but his actual presence is really quite something. I mean, it's like it's perfectly true, this charisma he had. His charisma he had. Oh yes, yeah. tremendous impact he had. Well, he, and yet such a modest person. He came in with one or two Ghanaians, you know, that had been at the meeting, I suppose. And everyone stood up. There were about 50 of us there, actually. Um, various people from different walks of life waiting to meet him. And he just smiled, you know, and said, why don't you sit down? So we all, he, he dispelled the formality straight away. Um, anyhow, he went round greeting these people, and Van was with him, my husband Van, um, and apparently, according to what Van told me, he suddenly said, where's June? Because, you know, his books were top priority with him, and he, he really wanted to get on with meeting me, but anyhow, he came over, and um, he drew up a chair as, as close as you're sitting there now, really, <laughs> and his first question was, tell me all about yourself, you see, and I, I was a bit sort of flabbergasted, I didn't know where to begin. So he said, uh, he helped me out, <laughs> he said, um, you studied history, his, you're a historian, I said yes. And he said, which university did you go to? And I said, London. And he said, oh, thank God it wasn't Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> you must be a radical. <laughs> so that really broke the ice. He liked the fact that you went to the University of London. Oh, yes. He yes. thought I must be a radical, yes. He, he, he always hated what these sort of Oxford accent stuff that people right. put on sometimes. Yes. He couldn't stand that. But anyhow, no, that was a, a bit of a joke. But he said, I've got to you know, speak to a lot of people here. Can I'm having an informal lunch in a room next door. Can you stay for lunch? We could talk it over. Just myself and you and Van and my secretary, Erica Powell at that time, just the, the four of us. And so that's where we discussed it and so on. And that's, that was the beginning really of, well, a long association with his publishing books and so on, until he died in fact in 1972. So not, not only was he somebody who had great charisma that affected yeah. people when they saw him, but he also yeah. had this gift to put people at ease. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I saw it very much at close range in um, the Conakry period, mm. um, where it, it was extraordinary, really, the, the effect he had there. Um, some of the, when he first went there, some of the um, cabinet ministers and secretaries government, you see, came to meet him because, you know, he was... Um, co-president of Guinea. Yes, you were. Yeah, well, secretary wanted to step down and make him president, mm. but he only accepted to be co-president. Mm. Anyhow, they came to greet him, and I, I had a desk at the end of the long veranda in his place where his office was, you know. So I used to see these people come in and hear them, what they said, and I can remember vividly one of them saying, um, how do you like, would you like me to address you? Should it be um, president? doctor or a sagifo and there was a slight force and Krumah smiled and he said my name is Kwame and Krumah <laughs> I thought that's so that's typical right. yeah yes, indeed. Yes, mm. indeed. so let's go back to the actual work of publishing his books yes first you do the I speak of freedom 
Yes. And then subsequently, how did the relationship develop as a... Well, before the coup, there was a, a marked change, you see, in, after the coup. But going back to before the coup, um, his London publishers did his books. The way his publishers Well, Thomas that? Nelson and Son, yeah. uh, that's the company my husband worked for, first of all. Uh, and then... Perhaps uh, to clarify that, your husband worked for Thomas... Thomas Nelson and Sons, and yes. Published they published his first book, um, first major book, mm -hmm. uh, which was his autobiography, and that came out at Independence, as you know. Mm -hmm. It was actually pub you know, um, published on that day, formally, in Accra. Mm -hmm. um, and then, after a few years, my husband moved to Heinemann Educational Books, and so Nkrumah wanted to keep um, Vanity's editor. Right. They got on very well on a personal level as well as a professional level. And so he switched to Heinemann mm -hmm. after that. So before the coup, there were these two London publishers. But the big change came after the coup, right. you see, when um, um, it was a disgraceful thing, really. But at the time of the coup, um, the two London publishers, I should exempt my husband here, he wanted to resign, he was so furious, but they decided they wouldn't um, be publishing any more of his books, you see. I think it was a commercial decision. Yeah, yes, because they sold a lot of textbooks in Ghana. And they, frankly, I think they made, they made a very um, a great mistake, really. They thought nothing more would be heard of him. Anyhow, he probably wouldn't be writing any more books, so it wasn't that important. But my husband was furious. He wasn't in a top position. He was their overseas editor. But the, the board, you know, decided, no, um, we, if we publish anything he might be writing, they didn't think he would, actually. Um, then probably our books won't sell in Ghana. Our textbooks won't be sold in Ghana. So anyhow, he was dropped by them. And, um, of course, one of the first things he started to do in Conakry was to, to write a Dark Days in Ghana about the Ghana coup. And so it was necessary to find another publisher. So we roll, we roll forward to post 66 then. Yes, yeah. And uh, there is a coup. Nkrumah mm -hmm. now lives in Conakry as, uh, as co-president. Co-president, And yes. he wants his work out. Did you think that his, his writing was very important to him? Absolutely, yes. One of the first things he, he did when he arrived at, uh, in Guinea um, was to set up an office. Um, and Secretary um, closed the Ghana Embassy, you know, at the time of the coup. He was so furious about the coup in Ghana. And made all their equipment there, um, their desks, their typewriters, all that sort of thing, available to Nkrumah, which was moved then into his... Um, residence at Villa Silly, mm -hmm. and so he he was really able to establish a sort of office routine very quickly within a few weeks. In fact, he'd got it going. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a new focus in his writing after after '66. Yes, yes, I would say there was. The first book he wanted to expose the what was behind the Ghana coup. Right. Um, because he realized, well, everyone did, I think, who had any political awareness, that it, it wasn't an uprising of the Ghanaian people. It was an organized um, military coup, which in those days was commonplace. I mean, there had been 22 or something, 25 probably, um, between 
well, before the before, before the Ghana one. Right. Yeah, it was it was getting out sort of routinely and so easy to carry out. Just a few military and police people in the capital, and the the country's yours. You know, it was easy in those days. But he wanted to expose the um, the external and also some of the internal forces behind it, because there was an opposition in Ghana who didn't like his radical policies and so on. So there was a mixture of the two. But that was the purpose of that book, and uh, he was writing. He was at his desk within weeks of arriving in. In so as soon as he got to Conakry, he got busy. Yeah. He wasn't sitting down in the corner. No, 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 certainly not. No. And uh, secretaries and cabinet ministers really called on him all the time. I mean, when they left the country on a mission, when they came back, they reported, you know, as though he was a head of state. Mm-hmm. You know, they had terrific regard for him in Guinea. So the people in Guinea really, really welcomed him. Oh, yes. Um, I think there was this um, love of Ghana, really, because when they were in a tight spot, you know, when they said the famous, secretary said the famous North, you know, to De Gaulle, mm-hmm. they, Guinea would not be joining the French community. They were very stuck because the French really were, were very mean. They even took the electric light bulbs out of things. They took everything away with them. And Guinea was poor. Um, so they were in a spot. And Nkrumah was in a position where he could arrange for a, a, what was supposed to be a loan, yeah, but it was a gift really of 10 million, I don't know what, whether it was dollars or what, what, but anyhow, it tidied them over. And I think the Guinea people never forgot it. And of course there had been the Ghana-Guinea-Mali Union before then, so they, they felt tied to Ghana in a way. No, they were terribly proud to have Nkrumah in their country. So now, with in, in terms of uh, your work as his publisher, mm. how, tell us a little bit about mm. uh, the setting up of Pan-Af publications. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so well, I have mentioned that, uh, you know, he was stuck for a publisher after mm-hmm. the coup. So, uh, when he'd um, done the manuscript of Dark Days in Ghana, I was out there, by the way, in, in June. Yes, he, he arrived in Conakry in March. I was okay, out so there the in June. was in February 66. By March, he was in Conakry. That's right. And you were there? Uh, in June, yeah. Okay. Because he was already... Um, and also, you see, that his book, Challenge of the Congo, was in process of publication at the time of the coup. And he wanted to do a new preface for that. So he, he sent for me that um, in June. And so I was out there. Um, yes, he was going. The the question of a publisher was a, a problem, because um, there was literally no company. So he asked me to find out what it would cost to set up his own um, publishing company, um, because he realised, I think, that if he'd been dropped by Heinemann and Nelson, there wouldn't be another UK publisher, because he was not supposed to be in power anymore. <laughs> Total underestimation of his political stature, but never mind. That was very common in those days. Um, so I found out it only cost a hundred pounds to s- register a company. In that case, if you know you can print, you couldn't print a book here without having a company name to put on it. So it was his idea. He said, "Well, register Panaf Books. Call it Panaf Books." That was a very typical choice of title, wasn't it? So the little company was registered, and um, it only involved myself and Krumah and 
Douglas Rogers was very useful at the time because he had a small office in Fleet Street. He was the editor of African World, a very well-known magazine that the Ghana government during Nkrumah's time had established in London to give news of what was happening in Ghana and in the rest of Africa. It was called Africa and the World. So that's where I operated from. Shared a desk actually with the treasurer of, of Africa and the World magazine. And it was an attic room, just one room, at the top of um, 89 Fleet Street. Okay. Yeah, okay. so that's how it all started. So after 66, your visits to Conakry now will be regular because he's writing so much. Yes. Okay, tell us a bit about that. <laughs> that for the number of times you went there, the oh, well, I went found the situation, mm. how it was like, how you mm. coped with everything. Mm. Just, you know. Mm. Well, between 1966 and 1972 when he died, I went 16 times. 16? Yes, yeah. It worked out about every two or three months, really. The rate at which he worked was phenomenal. You wrote a lot then? Never stopped, really. Um, uh, apart from the books he wrote then, which are some of his most important, I think, um, he was writing pamphlets as well, you know. Um, he was never happier than when he was at his desk and so on. Unfortunately, with the uh, people that travelled with him to the Hanoi mission, um, you know, when the coup took place in his absence, um, were secretarial staff. Uh, it was a, quite a big entourage he had on that mission, and they all remained loyal and went with him to Guinea. So he had secretarial help. Yes, they all went. There was about... Some joined him later, I can't tell you the number, but it was quite an impressive number. How it included his own cook, you see, which he always travelled with, a, a few secretarial staff, photographers and so on. And I owe a lot of the photographs I've got during that period to the cameramen that went on that mission, you see. And they stayed with him. Unfortunately, their film ran out after a while and they couldn't replace the equipment, you know, in Conakry. But I've got some lovely photographs of that period, which um, wouldn't have happened without these loyal people that followed him there. They were offered, um, you know, their fare back to Accra if they didn't wish to remain with him. But they wanted to. They wanted to remain with him. They remained very, very loyal. So every time you went, you 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 had some more. Uh, uh, work that he'd completed that you were coming to publish? Or yes, that's right, because in those days um, publishing was more complicated than it is now. You had to go through galley proofs, mm -hmm. page proofs, and each stage had to be checked out, you see, which involved... Nkrumah was meticulous about his writing. Every word had to be gone through, you know, at each stage. And if he wasn't sure about the word, he would turn to me sometimes and say, is that the best word? to use in that context. It's your language, not mine. <laughs> so, you know, he was a stickler, really, but a great joy for a, an editor to work with because, you know, he insisted on the highest standard um, and the accuracy of everything he said. Yes, it involved a lot of toing and froing, which I think publishing processes now have simplified a bit, you know. You put it on disc and all this sort of thing. But in those days, there was a lot of checking to do. And um, I used to take supplies for him, you know, some of the, the medicines and things for his um, entourage they couldn't get in Conakry. So, as a, <laughs> um, 
but I never spent more than about I think the maximum was three weeks. You know, it was short. So there were short visits. Three weeks there working with him, and then yes, that's right. I used to work every day in the villa. Mm -hmm. I had a desk there at the end of his veranda. He had this. It was an old colonial, French colonial-style residence. It was quite a modest place where some, I suppose, French official would have stayed in colonial times. Right. And um, the secretary made that available for him. Mm -hmm. It was facing the sea, a lovely, lovely place, really. And I had the opportunity to meet people like Cabral, which was so interesting oh, for me. Yes, Amalcar Cabral was a frequent visitor there because he was fighting this guerrilla war in Portuguese Guinea at the time. And one of the books that Nkrumah was working on in Conakry was the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. And <laughs> I think Cabral was very interested in that and probably contributed quite a bit to the ideas in that book. Oh, Cabral was a, a lovely person, spoke fluent English. And they, oh, I mean, he was in and out an awful lot, as were other um, guerrillas, you know, from other parts of Africa. He kept in touch with freedom fighters from other parts of Africa as well. And he was very busy in those days. Yes. Writing a lot, having meetings. That's and right. He also published uh, some of the correspondence, didn't he? Yes. Yes. yes, that's right, in the Conakry years. That's only a, a small selection, really. But he had a huge um, mail coming in every day from supporters all over the world. That's what I tried to show in my book on the Conakry years, but I could only give a small part of it, really. So his um, secretaries were kept very, very busy dealing with the mail, not to mention the cables and things that came in, you see, as well. So let's roll forward a little bit to Romania towards the end, and then we'll go back to mm -hmm. you going back to Conakry to, yeah. Yes. So mm -hmm. then one day you hear he's not very well. Hmm? One day you go and it's okay, next time you go it's not very well. Well, so. I noticed from, well, he, everything seemed to be pretty well all right till 1968. He was in terrific health then, although I was a bit uneasy because within six months of his arrival in Conakry, the cook that he relied on so much and did all his food for him, um, which he always travelled with, Amoa, I think his name was, or Amua, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. However, um, he was dead within six months. He and he, Yes, he was a fit man. I think, <laughs> I think he was um, helped on his way, to tell you the truth. But after that, um, Nkrumah's food was not safe, really. There various cooks came out from Conakry and so on. I can't prove any of this, but I have a strong suspicion that um, Nkrumah was poisoned in the end in a slow, nasty sort of way. But um, Amoa was probably the first casualty, I think, because he was a fit man. And then suddenly he, he's vomiting, he's unwell, he's taken to hospital, and they said, oh, he's got, he's got cancer, you know, and he's dead within six months. It was really inexplicable, but after that, it was a. I, I felt very concerned, really. There was no check on his food, really. Cooks were coming up from Conakry, and of course, in those days, the American embassy was open. I heard since, I didn't know at the time, that one of the cooks that came had been working at the American embassy. But he was very fit till about 1968. Then I began to notice he's losing weight. Um, Inexplicably, he seemed to be eating all right, but he he wasn't so well um, as he had been.
So by 6970 he, he was losing weight, yes, and he was having stomach upsets. He never had trouble like that before. But he was a very fit man through it. Very fit, yes. Um, I think that one of the Vietnamese or Chinese doctors, I think it was a Vietnamese doctor that attended him mostly when he was in Conakry, said he had the blood pressure of a young man, uh, you know, when he was first there, but there was this rather slow deterioration, and quite noticeably about 1970, he was definitely a sick man. And he wanted to really to get a medical checkup in um, Moscow because he had great faith in Russian medicine and he didn't want obviously to go anywhere in the West. Um, but it was the unfortunate time because the Russians were hobnobbing with the West. It was a time of detente. Yes. They'd opened an embassy in Accra and he was told that it would be inopportune was the word they used for him to travel to Moscow for a checkup but they could recommend a very good clinic in Bucharest and Ceausescu was okay. there, uh, you know, um, an ally really of the Russians at the time. So he went, he went there, um, but by that time he, he was a, a very sick man. So by 71 he had to check into the hospital or he... he, he no, but um, in the autumn really of 1971 he went to Bucharest for really for a checkup, but um, he died there, unfortunately. Yes, yes. The following April, he was he was by that time seriously ill. So you saw him? You saw him once or twice in, in, in Bucharest? Bucharest? Yeah. Yes, I went three times there three times. actually. Yes. Mm. And each time you saw that he was deteriorating. Oh yes. Well, I, I got a terrible shock when I my first visit there. But he had warned me, typical of him, he, he phoned up and said, um, we must be courageous, I'm not as you remember me. And I thought, I, what exactly does he mean? He's probably gone, his hair's gone white or something. But I got a terrible shock when I saw him. He was sitting up in, in a chair his legs were terribly swollen. He said he'd been sitting there for six weeks because it was too painful to lie down. And um, he wasn't, they brought a, a sort of light meal, but um, he didn't, obviously didn't fancy any of it. And uh, I couldn't get any sense out of the doctor there. No, they wouldn't tell me. I didn't. Well, he had a couple of Ghanaians from his entourage that went with him mm -hmm. to Bucharest. Uh, wonderful. People. Um, Kwam was one. What was the other one? Oh, Yamike was there as well. Okay. You know, his nephew that had okay. been with him in Conakry and always travelled with him. And they said, we can't find out. They won't tell us what's, what's wrong with him. Perhaps you can find out. So I asked if I could see the um, doctor in charge. Mm -hmm. You know, not in, in Nkrumah's presence, of course. And he said, are you, the, are you his wife? And I said, no, I'm not his wife, but I'm his publisher. I'm very concerned about, mm. you know, his health. And so he flannelled a bit. He, he didn't tell me what. He said, um, if we'd seen him two years ago, maybe we could have done something, but we can't, there's nothing we can do now. So I said, well, is it cancer, you see? Because a lot of people were saying, it was in the press here that he'd got cancer. And the doctor didn't say, no, he just said, 
oh, why does everyone talk about cancer? But he said, it's all over him. And I said, well, what is all over him? I couldn't get anything out of it. I don't know what they made of it, but um, I still maintain I think he was poisoned. That's on the, on the, this is very, um, what is still writing um, in, 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 in Bucharest? Well, uh, we were, when, um, in 1971, when he left there, um, Revolutionary Path, his last book, was in process, really. I mean, it was being compiled. It wasn't actually in the process of publication. But it, as you probably know, it was uh, to be a book of major speeches with introductory passages. And of course, there'd been people writing into him <laughs> saying, it'd be nice to have a book with, that contains all the important um, uh, speeches and things and to take account of what he'd written in Conakry. So he thought that was a good idea. It was his choice of title. That, again, this is very typical of his modesty because he said, first of all, call it, I think an appropriate title would be My Revolutionary Path. Then he said, no, cut out the My Revolutionary Path. That was very typical. Yes, the, it was pretty well complete by the time he went to Bucharest, but they hadn't the conclusion wasn't finished and that's what was finished well in the last few weeks of his life he didn't write it of course he dictated it to me so as he was lying on his yes bed. when he was on his bed on his deathbed as it he turned out yes he was telling me what he wanted in it and then um, i was writing it down you see and then he said read it to me so i read it out to him and he said i could add more but not now because he i think he was in awful pain, he had another injection and frankly I didn't feel I could press him anymore the next day when I saw him because well, he was he was so ill in fact I think he'd said it all reading it through, I can't think what he could have wanted to add to it it's all there I, I, so now there's a, so the, the next time you hear he's gone, he's departed his life right? yeah. and mm. then you set about rescuing his papers and his uh, well, personal his books from Conakry. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, well, I think realizing he was very seriously ill towards the end of 1970, he and probably realizing by then that he was not going to get back to Accra, mm -hmm. he wanted to safeguard the future of his books, so he made a will in Conakry mm -hmm. Um, leaving me in charge of his copyright and his published and unpublished papers and books. And he got um, it properly witnessed and everything. I had to get an English lawyer to witness it for him. And he had it um, signed in Conakry legally. Um, so that was very fortunate and a great foresight of his, really, because I might have had a Problems. Big, big, big problems. Yeah, saying, what right, you know? But he had appointed me as literary secretary, and so I had the permission to um, keep his books in print. Obviously, there were going to be no more books, but the important thing was to keep his books in print. That was another purpose of setting up Panaf, because the books he wrote before the coup, um, the publishers, the London publishers, were going to pulp their remaining stock. Yeah, it was it was terrible. They thought there wouldn't be any demand for them. Totally underestimated his political stature and so on. So 
the purpose of Panhaf was to keep those titles in print and also to print the new books he was to write in Guinea. There were some very important books, of course, before the coup. You see, Africa Must Unite Tell us more about that. Why? and Neocolonialism, Why? two of his major Why? works. Well, Africa Must Unite, I mean, the title says it all, and that message is still valid today. But Neocolonialism was <laughs> in part responsible for the coup <laughs> because it exposed, you know, the workings of international finance capital in Africa actually gave charts showing the, the network of these big foreign companies that were exploiting Africa's resources. And that was probably the final straw in deciding this dangerous man has got to be removed, you know. <laughs> we cannot have Africa united or in control of its own resources. And so that was a factor because it had such an impact in America. The American government immediately stopped aid to Ghana when that book really? was published, yes, and lodged a very strong diplomatic um, uh, complaint, you know, through their embassy in Accra, complaining about the book. I don't know any other book, really, that has created such a, a political stir as that one. The challenge of the Congo? <laughs> well, that wasn't perceived as such a great threat. You see, it was concentrated on the Congo. It did expose Union Minier, you know, and how the Belgian company had um, exploited the Congo's wealth, but this book was really dynamite. <laughs> and, um, but it was the final straw in a big build-up that had been going on for some time against his policies and especially his Pan-Africanism, which was perceived as a great threat. I think it is still perceived as a threat, because once Africa is united, it'll be in control of its own resources. And that's the last thing, really, that these economic interests want. What kind of audience do you think Kwame Nkrumah had in mind when he was writing? What kind of audience do you think he had in mind? Well, it wasn't just for the Ghanaian public. <laughs> it, was a, it was a global thing, because he regarded what well, people called his political philosophy in Krumerism, but he regarded it as a, a global mm. um, movement. And it, it still is very much so today, I think. Um, because the problems of Ghana and Africa as a whole are replicated in the Far East. There's still, it's still ongoing in various parts of Africa and in South America. These are the great areas, you know. No, he wasn't right. Basically, he had in mind, obviously, the, the Pan-African uh, readership, but it was a global thing, which, being a statesman that he was, his vision incorporated in a sort of global um, context. And if you look at his friends and his contacts, you've got Castro, you've got Nehru, Sukarno, the, uh, Chuck, yes, yes, that's right, I mentioned him. Um, Castro was a big factor. So he, he was a global figure while he was in power in Ghana, and that didn't go just because he'd gone to Conakry. <laughs> A little bit about uh, the actual the actual act of getting his letters and papers from Conakry and getting them onward to to to. Oh, that was quite a problem. Yes, after um, the secretary managed to stay in power a few years after Nkrumah died, um, but he was eventually overthrown in a coup again under very suspicious circumstances. 
And I was worried at the time because I thought, what's going to happen with a military regime there and so on? Do the correspondence files and all this historical material, which I knew must be still in Villa Silly, but I thought that at least, you know, the material there would be put either in a safe place or it would be guarded in that villa. I, didn't, I underestimated really what could happen there. But um, after Secretary had gone, there was a military regime, of course, and I couldn't get a visa or anything to go, but I wanted to go as his literary executives to see what had survived and uh, make a list of everything that was there and so on, not necessarily to bring it back. But in the end, I had to go without a visa and just risked it. it was 1987. Um, and it was just as well I went, actually. But I took a bit of a, a risk, yeah, to say yeah. the least. <laughs> um, because camera, the camera sana, the Guinea protocol officer that had been in charge at Villa Silly, you know, interpreting for Nkrumah and all this sort of thing, he was, of course, out of power. He was nobody. He was a very big man under Secretary's government. He was, in fact, Secretary's right-hand man that he um, drafted to serve Nkrumah. Um, he was just a nobody, but I, uh, he wrote me a, a, an air letter in 1980, the end of 86 or beginning of 87, out of the blue, because I was pondering how on earth I'm going to get out there. No Guinea embassy in London, and I couldn't get any contact from their Paris embassy. They didn't want to know. You see, any connection with Nkrumah or Secretary, and they wanted to know what my purpose of going there was. So it was a, there was a problem. Anyhow, fortunately I had this letter from Cameron Sana and he, he put a box number so I immediately wrote back and said I would like to come and just, you know, check to see what was still surviving and so on. He said he would, it was difficult, um, but he would meet me. So I couldn't get a visa, I decided to go without one. Um, Very brave. <laughs> Well, it was a bit risky. When I got to Paris, of course, you had to change planes in Paris. They said, where's your visa for Guinea? I said, I haven't got one, but I'm afraid I told a white lie. I said, I'm being met by government officials. <laughs> it's all right, so they passed me anyhow. They were glad to have somebody to travel on Air Africa, I think. Towards the end, it stopped several times. Myself and two Lebanese businessmen were the only people that wanted to go on to Conakry. They all got off at Nourchot or somewhere, you know, in between. No, nobody, and especially, uh, thought, well, she's obviously not a tourist. You don't go to Conakry for Conakry tourism. <laughs> but I got, had a big problem when I arrived, actually. I don't know whether you want to hear all this. Well, I'll try and make it brief. Yeah. But, um, yes, it was a problem because you know, queuing up uh, to, to go through the um, formalities, the checks, I immediately looked at my passport, where's your visa, you see, and I said, I haven't been able to get one. They said, well, wait over there, you see, and I thought, oh, Lord. It was the end of the day, and, and I thought, I'm just going to be put on the return flight back, you know, without a visa. But fortunately, camera did turn up, but he'd had trouble getting some old taxi or something to get there. He was really looking so down and out, poor camera. But anyhow, he turned up and he came and spoke to them in French. And they said, he said he would take 
charge of me and not to worry and all. But of course they didn't recognize him and he was a man of no importance then. But they said they would have to keep my passport and I would have to get a, a visa from the home office or whatever in Conakry before they would return my passport. So it was a bit worrying actually. I had to leave the airport without my passport. But camera managed to get um, a photographer that got a bit of film left and we, long story, but he managed to get it. So, But then I, getting to see the papers was, uh, see what was left in the Villa Silly was a problem because the military had taken over. He said, camera told me that it was filled with soldiers and but he thought the files and everything had been packed into tea boxes and sealed and he would I want I mustn't go near he said you must lie low mm. here in Conakry lie low I will see if I can you know see them and, and bring them to you um, fortunately he said the one of the the commander there mm. at the garrison in Villa Silly came from his village okay. and he might be able to arrange something. Right. So, long story short, in two or three days he um, managed to bring the, the stuff to his little bungalow. I was staying in a, a very grotty little hotel, no air conditioning or anything, it was terrible in Conakry. But anyhow, I went there to his place during the day and he brought the stuff there but it was just thrown in the old house. The soldiers had broken into the boxes looking for valuables, I suppose, and they didn't think papers were valuable, of course. No, soldiers for you, but I'm glad they didn't think so. But they hadn't bothered sealing them or anything, so they'd been exposed to insects and all this sort of... I was just in time, really. But I realized I'd have to bring them back with me. So I had to give camera some money to go and buy a suitcase. Um, in the market and I couldn't bring I brought all the correspondence files back I couldn't bring all his little library back he had a small library of books there that he'd collected during the years most ones I'd sent or taken with me and he always annotated his books and so I had to sort through the ones that he had actually written in because I thought these would be valuable for students to see what comments or what he had marked as important I was able to bring those back and his correspondence files, but I had to leave some that and hadn't got any marking. The camera would go back and secure them, you think? Yes, he brought everything that was, had been packed in these boxes. He had packed them, actually, when Nkrumah died, and he returned. Um, you know, Nkrumah had a state funeral in Conakry. Um, so he, camera came back with the body to... Um, to, well, to Conakry. To Conakry. Yes, that's yeah, right. Sorry. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, they wanted me to go, but I said, no, I'm, I'm go to, to London from Bucharest and carry on with the books. I'm, you know, if I'd been his wife or something, it'd been different. But I said, no, he would wish me to ensure the safety of his books. It wasn't appropriate for me to go. I thought his wife and Patty would go. Yes, she didn't. Yes, she did go. Yeah. Why? Did you choose Howard University as the, the, the place? Well, yeah. some of the stuff I thought really should be placed into safe hands, especially the, the correspondence files that had damage from mice had actually got into one of the boxes and they'd eaten the edges of the files and so on. They need, it needed expert paper mm -hmm. care, you see. And I thought, well, there was nowhere 
in Africa that I could think of that had got the facilities and proper air conditioning and this, that and the other, paper experts. And I thought the materials should be put on disk and all this sort of thing available for scholars. So the first thought was um, Howard University, which is the biggest black university in the world and got all the expertise in the world. And they had a research um, centre, Morland Spingarn Research Centre. So I wrote to them first and um, no, no, I didn't write them first. That's right. I went out to see them. That's right, yes, to see if I thought it was suitable. Yes, the sequence, forgive me, but it's a long time ago now. Uh, I think I had made the contact, that's right. And then I decided to go and see for myself. And I was really very pleased with what I saw. And first thing you notice going into Morland Spingon, great pictures of Krumah's, they had all his books in their library. And the students, of course, were very... Um, enthusiastic supporters of Nkrumah. In fact, Howard University um, tried to get him to be, um, you know, take a, a position at Howard University during the concrete years. Some sort of honorary th um, something or other. But, it, you know, they recognized that his importance on. So it was a suitable place to deposit, you know, some of the material that couldn't um, wait. So they've got, they've got um, some very important material there. What do you think was Nkrumah's uh, greatest gift to Africa? What, what, if you could summarize? Oh, I think his pan-African vision of a united continent. That was behind all his thinking and all his writing. Always talking about it. Because he thought that the um, position of the ordinary people in Africa could not improve until the continent was united and um, was in control of its own house, in other words. First thing always on his mind was the political kingdom, you see. <laughs> you know, you remember he emphasized that all the time. Until you have political control, you're in control of your own house, you can forget about your welfare, because other people will be coming in to take that, especially a, a rich continent like Africa. It used to drive him mad when people talked about poverty in Africa. I mean. He knew, obviously, the African people were poor, but he said people are mixing up. The continent is not poor. It's the richest continent in the world with the poorest people. So something has to be wrong. You've got to ask the question, why is this the case? So all his writings really have this in, in view, really, the pan-African um, context. His book, Challenge of the Congo, it, the subtitle is... Um, Oh, I can't remember the exact detail, but it, it's about the similar troubles in independent states, you know, that are not in control of their resources. And the challenge of the Congo was to um, highlight the example of what had happened there. Um, of course, Union Minier had been exploiting, you know, its resources were not benefiting the people of the Congo. But there's always this pan-African um, vision. That's, that's the greatest, I think. Well, how does, how does it feel to have worked so closely to... How what? How does it feel to have worked so closely with... Well, I, I just a tremendous honor. I mean, uh, for a historian to <laughs> meet with someone who's making history and then to be play a very minor part in it, you know, after the coup, um, that was perhaps the, the best experience really of the whole time because he had more time to reflect there we had 
long conversations, you know, in Villa Silly that wouldn't have been possible while he was in government. It was too busy, you know. It was mostly checking his books and the texts of his books. But we had time to talk about what was going on in the world and all this sort of thing. I got to know him much better after 66. But it was a tragedy for the whole of Africa, really, that time. I think Kaunda is a bit of a gloomy person, but he said Africa will never recover from it. I think they will, because his vision has lived on. But it has did set back the clock in Africa, there's no doubt about it. Before the coup, in Flagstaff House, in the sort of waiting room, adjoining his office there, waiting to go in. And sometimes I'd been there with ambassadors and important people sitting there, and he would send for me first, you see, because he, his books were so important, he wanted to get that done, and really I got some nasty looks from some of these people that thought, you know, who's this blooming woman going in ahead of us? I'm a big cheese here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he, total disregard for that sort of thing. No standing on ceremony. No standing on ceremony at all, no. And the ability to make everybody in the party always yeah. in the circle feel that, they were important and their role in history was as important as his. Yeah. I, I well, Erica told me once that she had this little office, you see, adjoining his in Flagstaff House, and she was very amused. At cabinet meetings, she said all she could hear was roars of laughter, you know, and it was always a jolly occasion. Mm. Yeah, he, he, I'm, I've never seen him. Mm. He, he couldn't stand people that put on airs at all. But in practice, he carried out in practice, his door was open to anyone, you know, market women would come. Erica used to get a bit concerned because, for his security after a while, because, you know, there, there was a bit of discontent in the country from yes, certain quarters, and there were two bomb incidents, Indeed. you remember, Indeed, yes. his life was in danger, and she thought it was dangerous for these people coming out, but he, he didn't like shutting the door on anyone. But after a while, his security people he began to take control and said, we can't go on like this in Itondic and Harry coming, but it wasn't his wish to be shielded from anyone. You wanted to speak about the last time you saw him in Ghana. Oh, yes. Because, uh, before he left for Hanoi. That's a very strong memory I have, yes. There was a, a lot of talk of coups at that time because in January, um, the last time I saw him was in February, but in January there'd been a coup in Nigeria and Balewa's government had been overthrown. So it was, the talk was on people's lips, it was a dangerous sort of time. And I got the feeling for the first time, usually when I arrived on my trips there, and I can't remember the exact number of times I went before the coup, but it was very often. Um, I'd always felt sort of elated <laughs> getting out of the aircraft, and there was a sort of happy atmosphere, you know, children, school children going to school with their satchels. It, it seemed to be a happy time, building going on, Tema Highway being built. But that last visit, there was a bit of unease, and even with the Volta opening, there was a big dinner they had, I think it was the night before. Anyhow, Kaiser was there, one of the people that had helped with financing the Volta Dam. And the lights suddenly all went out. And I thought, this is very odd. Um, so we were in total darkness. We were all sitting there, you know, this big occasion. 
masses of tables, hundreds of people there, closing cars, but they came on again. I, I thought, <laughs> I hope it's not a, a no-men, but people were a bit jumpy, and especially um, those close to him, even his wife, didn't want him to leave the country, because there were talk of coups, and there were a bit of discontent with shortages of various food. It's part of the economic sanctions that were being applied insidiously with Ghana. You remember the price of gold and cocoa, the main export, suddenly dropped on the world market. There were these sort of pressures that Mugabe's facing now, insidious, but not claimed by anyone, but they had their effect. So there was a slightly uneasy feeling. But that, yes, you asked me the last time I actually saw him was in the castle. He didn't drop and work there, but occasionally he would use his office there, and it was in the castle. And we were going through the page proofs of Challenge of the Congo, and suddenly there was a knock at the door, and um, it was either the foreign minister or somebody from the foreign ministry came in, said there'd been an urgent cable from the Ghana embassy in Washington, um, that he had to show Nkuma. And it was, the message was that the Americans had agreed to stop the bombing of Hanoi for three days to allow his plane to land safely. Because Ho Chi Minh had sent a message previously saying, I cannot guarantee the safety of your plane coming on this peace mission because the Americans are still bombing Hanoi. So the Americans had sent this desperate for him to go because they wanted him out of the country clearly. Um, it wasn't foreseen at the time, but um, of course Nkrumah was determined to go. He reckoned he had a va um, viable peace plan. And I, I think he, he probably did have. But the main thing was the Americans were terrified that he wouldn't go, in which case their plans for the coup in his absence would not be successful if he was still on Ghanaian soil. However, I was there when that message arrived. And Nkrumah, I, I don't know, he, I don't think he suspected, obviously, that it would happen. But it was, people were jumpy a bit at that time. Anyhow, he was determined to go, and he's, he's, it was only a few days, really, before he said, why don't you stay on here? We've been working very hard, you know, on the page proof. Stay and have a bit of a holiday, and when I come back, we can finish it off. Fortunately, I said, I think I better get back with it now, because the London publishers were waiting to, you know, do the final processing. And also, I wasn't frankly interested in a holiday without him being there. The whole joy of being there was working with him. There seemed nothing, no point in staying on. Fortunately, I, no, I did leave and with the page proofs, corrected page proofs. So that was very important, actually. Um, but, no, he was determined to go. Mm. Apparently there were two plans that... Um, I, uh, this is what was discovered, I think, afterwards. There were two plans. There was a British plan. The British were in on it. It wasn't just a CIA thing, and I think West Germany intelligence was also in on the scheme. The British one, Harold Wilson's plan, was to get him assassinated as he walked the aircraft before he left. Um, but the American plan was no do it when he's so far away that he can't you know can't return. And actually, it didn't happen until his plane had reached Rangoon. It was too late to return in 24 hours. But the the um, so the American plan was adopted. 
and well it did work out as we know but um, the, the Harold Wilson plan in a way it's credit to Harold Wilson if you can see it that way that he didn't underestimate Nkrumah he knew that he would still be a threat as long as he was alive whereas the American underestimated him they thought nah, he'll be, once he's out of power that's the end of him we'll hear no more about him total underestimation Hmm. So I was there actually seeing this ploy, you see, in the final um, thing. I, I think Nkrumah couldn't have gone if, if it, the bombing had continued because Ho Chi Minh wasn't prepared to receive him on those conditions. No, no, could not have died. Yes, he could well have been um, shot down because there was very heavy bombing going on at the time. Yes, yes, there was a lot of bombing. Hmm. So again, that reinforces the the theory that, well, we all know now, I mean, it's, um, it's commonly claimed. In fact, the CIA have claimed it as a victory. They're, one of their chief operatives has written a book, In Search of Enemies, in which he said that he got a promotion, the CIA man in the craft, for the successful coup. Yeah. Welcome back. That was a um, lengthy and quite fascinating interview with June Milne, uh, the research assistant for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. And uh, she talked about um, many issues, how she met uh, Dr. Nkrumah, uh, the impact of his uh, work in Africa and internationally, uh, how she was able to, with his uh, uh, leadership, create a publishing house, uh, Pan-Af Books, uh, which continued to publish uh, Nkrumah's books after uh, the CIA-backed um, counter-revolutionary coup of February 24th, 1966, and worked with him closely while he was at uh, Villa City in uh, Conakry, Guinea. And that's going uh, to conclude our program uh, for uh, today, the Pan-African Journal this special worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.com. Blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with uh, the music of Jimi Hendrix, and uh, this, of course, uh, being the 52nd anniversary of his transition, we want to listen to a recording, a rare recording, with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Taj Mahal uh, at a studio jam session in January of 1970. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.